Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria. Today on the show, the state of race in America. The killing of George Floyd has opened up an extraordinary moment in this country. What does history tell us about the chances of bringing about real change? I will talk to the historians Annette Gordon-Reed and Tim Naftali. Then, what kind of nations have fought COVID most successfully? Democracies or dictatorships? Political scientist Francis Fukuyama has the answers. Also, the world may look pretty grim these days, but I will bring you a brand new answer to the age-old question. Are human beings inherently good or evil? But first, here's my take. Cities across the American South and West are getting pummeled by the coronavirus right now. But New York City seems to have things under control as it begins to open up. So I have to admit, I'm excited. I know it will be a very different city for a while with many aspects of urban life canceled or curtailed, but still, I'm excited. For the past three months, the city has felt like an empty stage set, full of grand buildings and boulevards, but without many people. Now, New York's motley crew has reemerged, lingering outside the cafes and bars, gingerly entering shops, or simply walking on the streets. Despite the masks, the space between tables, and the limits on people in stores, urban life is coming back. I know, I know, there are lots of people saying this pandemic is going to be the death knell for cities, that their density makes them petri dishes for disease, that people have discovered they don't need to live in cramped quarters so close to work, that teleconferencing makes the office a relic of the past. Maybe they're right, but historically, they've been wrong. In the 14th century, the bubonic plague hit Florence hard, killing more than half the city's population, by some estimates. Giovanni Boccaccio's Decameron gave people advice that sounds remarkably current. Flee the city, isolate with a few friends, and gather in the evenings to eat, drink, and tell each other interesting stories, their version of Netflix. And yet it was after one of the worst plagues in human history that the cities of Europe, Florence in particular, launched the Renaissance. In 1793, Philadelphia was America's leading metropolis, the nation's capital and its most populous city. It experienced a gruesome epidemic of yellow fever that literally decimated the population, killing 5,000 of the city's 50,000 residents. Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson, who had always disliked cities, lived in the outskirts and continued to commute to work. He later wrote that this disease, like most evils, are the means of producing some good. The yellow fever will discourage the growth of great cities in our nation. It didn't quite work out that way. Critics say this time it's different. New technologies make it much easier for people to work from home, and the dangers of the disease will keep them away. There's some truth to this, but for perspective, it's worth reading Harvard economist Edward Glazer's Triumph of the City. He points out that U.S. cities faced a bleak, bleak future in the 1970s. Globalization and automation had killed off many of the great urban industries, from textile manufacturing to shipping. 
The car had proved to be a killer technology, far more important than Zoom, and allowing people to live farther from the office. Phone service had become cheap and easy, and add race riots, crime, and mismanagement, and you had a Molotov cocktail of factors that wrecked city life. And yet, cities came back. They found new economic life in the service sector, from finance to consulting to healthcare. Despite the rise of fax machines, email, and video conferencing, cities reinvented themselves in myriad different ways, drawing on a simple asset. Human beings like to mingle. Glazer notes that in industries such as finance and technology, people gain huge advantages by being close to the action, meeting new people, learning day-to-day from mentors, and comparing notes, much of which happens accidentally. It's true that the coronavirus has presented big cities with new challenges, but it's important not to rush to conclusions. Density is not the problem it's made out to be. Manhattan, the densest part of New York City, has a lower rate of infection than any of the other boroughs. Across the U.S., per capita rates of infection are highest in some of the least densely populated regions. And if you look abroad, massive cities have handled the virus stunningly well. Taipei, Hong Kong, and Singapore are all dense cities with packed mass transit systems, millions traveling on subways. And yet their COVID-19 deaths have been amazingly low. Under 30 dead in Singapore, under 10 dead in Hong Kong, and all of Taiwan. They have succeeded in this difficult situation because, perhaps as a consequence of the SARS epidemic, they were prepared. They invested in healthcare and hygiene. They reacted to the virus early, aggressively, and intelligently. Now they are reaping the rewards. One rule seems clear. Bad leadership, misguided priorities, and inept policies can sink a city. So if New York and other urban centers founder this time, it will not be because of pandemics and technology. It will be for the same reason that countries and cities have failed throughout history. Bad government. Go to CNN.com slash Fareed for a link to my Washington Post column, and let's get started. On July 5th, 1852, the escaped slave-turned-abolitionist Frederick Douglass told a crowd in Rochester, This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice. I must mourn. He went on, What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, A day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. Here we are 168 years later, and this July 4th weekend, many Americans are wondering whether to celebrate or chastise their country. Let's look at the extraordinary six weeks since the death of George Floyd with two great historians. Annette Gordon-Reed is a professor of history at Harvard. She won a Pulitzer Prize for her book, The Hemings of Monticello, An American Family. And Tim Naftali teaches at NYU and is the former director of the Richard Nixon Presidential Library and a CNN presidential historian. Uh, Professor Reed, let me ask you whether, are you hopeful that this time it's different uh, or that this time is bigger than some of the past cases? When you look back at history, do you feel like there have been many of these moments where there is a kind of attempt to to reckon with the past and then it dissipates? Well, yes, there have been those moments. Uh, I'm hopeful about this moment. You're absolutely right. There is something different about this. Polls show that 
large numbers of Americans think that there should be some reckoning, some sort of change in attitudes about policing, change in attitudes about voter suppression, all of those kinds of things. I'm, I'm a hopeful person generally. Uh, I have to be. Uh, but I do know that unless concrete actions are, you know, follow that hope, follow the sort of starts that have been made, then we will fall back into the problems that we've seen for so many years. Tim, what strikes me as possibly one of the most hopeful aspects is that there has not been a kind of white backlash to many of the things that have happened. And I measure that in one very simple way, which is I think it's fair to say that President Trump tried to court uh, such a backlash. And yet his numbers, his poll numbers have actually fallen among whites. The reason that Joe Biden is leading so significantly is not increased support among minorities, but decreased support among whites. And in a sense, you know, you, you know this as former director of the Richard Nixon Presidential Library. Ever since Richard Nixon, the, there has been a strategy largely employed by Republicans to court this white backlash. Why do you think it's not working this time? You know, every so often, candor enters into the president's tweets. And uh, he just uh, recently tweeted, lone warrior. And that really describes, at the moment, uh, his efforts, as you, would, as you said, to court a white backlash. Um, president Obama, uh, when he uh, spoke not too long ago, was talking about the diversity of the movement, the Black Lives Movement, the movement on the streets in response to the murder of George Floyd. He, he noted how different that was from the 60s. Um, I would also point out two other hopeful signs. I share with Annette the sense of hope. Um, in 2001, the state of Mississippi had a referendum on what to do with a flag. Two thirds of those who participated in the referendum voted to keep the flag. The state of Mississippi just removed its flag without the kind of of demonstrations and backlash that certainly would have happened if a governor had done that in 2001. But the people of Mississippi, the white people of Mississippi, there weren't enough of them to, to respond and oppose it. The second big change is that after Charleston in 2015, after the murder of nine African-Americans in that church by a white supremacist, there were calls to remove the names of Confederate generals on the 10 bases in this country that have those names. The U.S. Army, whose commander-in-chief at the time was Barack Obama, opposed changing those names, making the argument that those names were to honor individuals, not ideologies. Well, in June, after the Lafayette Square fiasco, the U.S. military made clear in a number of very powerful ways that enough was enough. And... There is a debate now, but Republicans and Democrats are arguing to change those, those names. Those are just two examples of what I think is a transformational change in the conversation in this country. Uh, Annette, let me ask you about one area where it does seem like we're still talking past each other. Because there is this sense, I think, that there are people who want to have a much broader reckoning about American history. And there, are, there, are, there is a response which I here sometimes, which is not said as much publicly, were people saying, you know, but we've come a long way. We're really not as racist as we were. And it feels like these are two separate conversations in a way. I, I, would, I would argue at least. I think, yes, of course, there's a lot of progress. Look at the number of black elected officials. Look at the number of black uh, police chiefs. 
But the larger question of has this country reckoned with the past, with 350 years of slavery and segregation and more, do you think America has properly reckoned with that past? No, we have not. We've certainly acknowledged it, but I think the events of the past six weeks have told us that they're that sort of talking past one another that you're talking about has been a part of our a feature of our society for a very, very long time. I think a number of Americans looking at the video of George Floyd being killed uh, in the moment of pandemic when we're all feeling very, very vulnerable, had an opportunity to consider these matters in ways that perhaps they had not before. And we're beginning to have a discussion, but there's no doubt that we have been talking past one another. I think that lots of people don't did not believe the extent of the problem, that if there was a problem, it was a problem of black culture, problem of black families, sort of blaming the victim in this situation. Um, I do think that we're beginning to have this discussion, but it hasn't been, this is not something that we've been engaged in in a very, very effective way up until this moment. And I will say that I think the talk about the monuments and so forth, all of those things are important, but they're not as important as the things that got us here when we started thinking about the nature of policing in the African-American communities. That's a much tougher thing than bringing down a statue or changing the name of a, of, a, of a school or whatever. All right, stay with us because when we come back, I'm going to ask Annette Gordon-Reed what to do about the Jefferson Memorial. Remember, she won a Pulitzer Prize for writing about Thomas Jefferson and his relationship with Sally Hemings when we come back. And we are back with the eminent historians, Annette Gordon-Reed and Tim Naftali. Professor Reed, you are the authority on Jefferson and Sally Hemings. So in light of uh, that reality, he was a slave owner, of course, what should we do about Thomas Jefferson, the memorials to him, his face on Mount Rushmore? Well, I think I've made the distinction a number of times when people have asked me about this between the founding generation and Confederates. I think members of the founding generation created the United States of America. If you think that's a good thing, it's worth commemorating, not necessarily celebrating, but commemorating their achievements. Uh, the Jefferson Memorial, for example, that replica of Monticello and UVA com combined there with Jefferson statue in the, in the middle, is, in my view, an excellent place to contextualize Jefferson, to explain the good things that he did. The memorial was put up with his words along the walls, but also to have a section to talk about the fact that he was a slave owner, to talk about what that meant um, in, in the country and his attitudes about race and all those kinds of things as well. I think with the founders, Jefferson, Washington, and others, there's a way of commemorating them, but at the same time, you have to tell the truth about their lives. They're not people that I think can be put away. So, uh, Tim, uh, Annette seems to be saying, you know, commemorate people for, th for th the achievements they had, despite their having uh, been slave owners, unlike Confederate generals who were being commemorated, presumably, for mutinying against the United States in order to support slavery. But what do we do with somebody like Woodrow Wilson? Wilson, uh, you know, the Princeton just renamed the school. Um, it seems to me Wilson was really being honored for things that had, did not have anything to do with his racist views. So how to think about that? I, I think in, in, uh, Wilson is a very interesting case because uh, he was being honored for his views about 
international engagement, international peace, international organizations. I learned some time ago, actually thanks to my students at the University of Hawaii, how Woodrow Wilson had not applied his 14 points uh, equally to all of the nations that were struggling for freedom uh, at the time of the Versailles Treaty. And he was clearly racist in the responses he made to Koreans, for example, who wanted to be liberated uh, from the Japanese. And, and so I, I think that, 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 that Wilson, that even in the field for which Wilson is most admired, his racism played a role. And so that's why I've, I've never been comfortable with Woodrow Wilson being a hero uh, the way he has been treated. Other presidents, where they have acted in ways that have benefited the country, and those ways are not permeated by their pinched racist views, then you have this moment where you're, you're juggling and you're saying, well, we, we should remember them for this as opposed to that. I mean, after all, even Richard Nixon, who committed abuse of power and, and engaged in real crimes, still deserves credit for the opening to China. Uh, Annette, what do you think of Wilson? I mean, the, the man who wanted the League of Nations and in, in a way has defined America's international role uh, ever since, and yet uh, resegregated the federal bureaucracy in a kind of, in a, you know, an act of real overt racism. Mm -hmm. Well, he was a terrible person. I mean, he did, as for Princeton, he made modern Princeton. He took it from the sleepy college to something that is the thing that we, that we think of today as a, a great university. And he was a president of the United States, the League of Nations, all those kinds of things that we honor. But I think it made sense for them to take his name off of the school for public policy because his public policies were, as you said, he initiated public policies. He sort of went backwards. He resegregated institutions that had been desegregated. And so it, it, I can understand them not wanting to be associated with him in that way. Is, is it healthy, Tim, to be having this debate? There are a lot of Americans who feel like, you know, does this mean we don't honor our country? We don't celebrate our country? Do, does it, does it, is it a sign of weakness or, or a sign of strength? It's a sign of strength. I, I, I think of our country as struggling between the realities of 1619 and the aspirational qualities of the Enlightenment. Uh, those ideas that Jefferson put forward, even though he didn't live them, as Annette knows better than anyone. Uh, and it's the struggle between our, the aspirational qualities of our, of our principles and the realities of America that has led to that bending towards justice that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and later Barack Obama talked a lot about. So if, if you talk about how we're aspiring to those values and then talk about how we, each generation has, has fallen short, I think that's very healthy because, in a sense, you're, you're confirming the central ideas of the country. The founders didn't achieve those ideas, but the founders didn't put a glass ceiling forever on them. Each of our generations has been chipping away, using the power of those principles as our tools. So I think it's a sign of hope and uh, of, uh, of a healthy democracy to be having this conversation. Annette Gordon-Reed, Tim Naftali, fascinating conversation. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you for asking. Thank you. Thank you, Free. Next on GPS, Japan has had 20,000 COVID cases total since it recorded its first infection in mid-January. This week, the United States started hitting more than double that number in new cases every day. 
How do two nations have such a different experience with the same disease? Stanford's Francis Fukuyama has the answer. Want a daily dose of Fareed and his team? Now you can get it with Fareed's Global Briefing, the newsletter that gives you the best insight and analysis on global affairs. Go to CNN.com slash Fareed to sign up. As the COVID-19 pandemic engulfed the globe, scientists and politicians alike scrambled to learn about how to combat its spread. So were authoritarian countries like China better equipped to mobilize their populations into testing and lockdowns? Can democracies slow the spread of the virus with a free flow of information? Or was having a female leader like in New Zealand or Taiwan the secret to success? Francis Fukuyama, the eminent political scientist, explored some of these questions in a recent foreign affairs article titled The Pandemic and Political Order. He is the director of Stanford's Center on Democracy, Development and the Rule of Law. Welcome, Frank. Thank you very much, Fareed. So what is the simplest uh, answer to the question, what kind of regimes handle the pandemic best? I think the first thing to say is that it doesn't correlate at all with whether you're a democracy or an authoritarian country, because if you look in both of those categories, you'll find some good performers and bad performers. Uh, I think that the real um, characteristics that have been critical are different and they can be shared either by either type of regime. So one is you obviously need good state capacity. And by that, we mean a public health system, adequate doctors, nurses, the people that run uh, uh, hospitals and organize the system as a whole. Uh, but I think the more intangible factor is a matter of trust. Uh, if people, citizens don't trust the government and if they don't trust their fellow citizens, then they're not going to comply with shutdown orders. Uh, they're not going to take the necessary protective measures, which can be quite burdensome, as we've seen from being indoors for the last uh, three months. And sometimes uh, it's a democracy that has that. So that would be South Korea or Taiwan or Germany. Uh, sometimes uh, an authoritarian country has that. And that, I think, would be China uh, at the moment. But then there are democracies that haven't done so well. And there's autocracies that also have not done well in those categories. So we understand state capacity, I think. And we understand we can see how American America just doesn't do government, particularly in the healthcare system, uh, that well. But talk a little bit about social trust. You've, you wrote a whole book about it. And what I'm intrigued by is, you know, where does it come from? Because you look at a place like Hong Kong, which I was fascinated by. So in Hong Kong, even though there are all these protests against the government and there are protests about the legitimacy of the government, uh, there was still a kind of social trust which said, when the government tells you to wear a mask, you wear a mask. When the government tells you not to do this, you know, what, what is the, what, how do you describe that? Well, I think there's really two different sources. So one is deeply historical. Uh, in the United States, we have a political culture that really does not trust government. You know, the, uh, the, the flag with the rattlesnake that says, don't tread on me. This goes back to, you know, the 18th century where Americans really don't like government authority. And so... This is something that really doesn't exist in most Asian countries where government is regarded as benign. But there's a more proximate cause uh, in the United States in particular, which has to do with polarization. You know, in my view, 
the degree of polarization we have today in the U.S. is the single biggest weakness of the country as a society. It means that citizens don't trust one another, and therefore they also don't trust the government, depending on whether it's a blue state governor that's in control or someone like uh, President Trump that's running the federal government. And I think that's really what's hobbled the um, uh, ability of the United States to respond adequately. So um, when you look at the United States, um, what you find is that it is the only country, I think, uh, in which the response to COVID has been politicized in the sense that uh, wearing a mask is a political statement. Observing social distance is a political statement. I've, I've struggled to look in other countries and you, you just don't find this in a, in a similar way. And I wonder if there is some similarity here, Frank, where um, the response to climate change in the United States is highly polarized and politicized in a way that almost nowhere, even in Australia, it isn't. Well, that's uh, true, and it's an unfortunate thing about the U.S., but I do think there's actually a common uh, thread, uh, not between democracy and poor response, but between populist leaders and poor responses. So, for example, in addition to President Trump, you've got Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, and you've got um, Manuel uh, uh, Lopez Obrador in uh, Mexico, both of whom are populist, one of the right, one of the left, and these are also polarized countries, especially Brazil. And so, like in the United States, Bolsonaro has a core of fanatical right-wing supporters, but then lots and lots of critics. And I think they've, they're quickly you know, racing to the top of bad responses as a result of their polarization. How would you describe um, some, some of the successful countries in Asia um, in, in, in terms of the key to their success? Is it um, some kind of a Confucian culture or system? People use uh, the word to mean, I suppose, a kind of respect for authority? Well, uh, it's not just respect for authority. I think that one of the characteristics of uh, Confucianism is actually respect for bureaucracy and for education and expertise. In South Korea, for example, the management of their um, COVID response was delegated to a a woman, a health professional who was running their centers for disease control, she became the single most trusted person in the entire country because of her competence. And so there's a kind of, uh, I think, a cultural inclination in that part of the world to trust people in government, to think that they know what they're doing because they're educated and have uh, expertise. And obviously that's something that does not uh, apply in many other parts of the world. And finally, when you look at the democracies and dictatorships, as you say, there isn't a clear correlation. They're, they're good, uh, goods and bads on both sides. But it's fair to say that when people look at the U.S. and China, generally speaking, they would feel that despite a bad start, China has managed to ha handle it better than the U.S. Does that matter in a kind of a geopolitical sense? Oh, yeah. No, it, it, it unfortunately matters because people aren't looking statistically at democracies and authoritarian governments at a whole, as a whole, they're, they're looking at that one comparison. And I, I would say it's worse than what you just said. I mean, uh, the United States really looks so bad now that we're not even out of our first, uh, first wave. Uh, and I think it's really going to hurt uh, American standing. Uh, I think, you know, the United States has an opportunity to correct this. The one important check uh, that our Constitution provides is an electoral check, and we'll reach that point in November. So it's not an unrecoverable 
uh, situation. But I do think that right now that um, the United States looks like it's a country in decline, uh, and a lot of people are taking notice of that. Frank Fukuyama, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Fareed. Next on GPS, the world may seem dark these days, but my next guest says humans are hardwired for kindness. A hopeful history of humankind when we come back. In the midst of the COVID crisis, humanity's other issues continue unabated. War and strife hasn't paused, despite the entreaties from the UN Secretary General. Terror continues. Murderers and shootings are actually up in some American cities, despite lockdowns. And those stay-at-home orders are thought to have caused incidents of domestic violence to spike. It's all enough to make us fear for the present and future of humanity. That's why I want to hear from Rutger Bregman. He is the author of Humankind, A Hopeful History. Uh, pleasure to have you on, Rutger. Let me begin by asking you to explain what you sort of are arguing against in this book, which is what you call the thin veneer of civilization theory. Explain yes. what that is and why it's wrong. So this is a really old idea in Western culture, which says that our civilization is only a thin veneer and that when there's some small change in our circumstances or where when we're in the midst of a crisis, that we reveal our true selves, that we start looting and plundering, and we, we really show that we're these savages deep down. Now, that idea goes back all the way to the ancient Greeks. You find it within Orthodox Christianity, the notion that we're all sinners. You'll find it with the Enlightenment philosophers. I think it's at the heart of our capitalist system, the notion that people are just selfish. And I think it's fundamentally wrong. So what, what is the you know, strongest evidence you have that it's fundamentally wrong? So we can first look at what happens after natural disasters. So one case study that I look at in my book is what happened in 2005 after Katrina, after New Orleans was flooded. And we all still remember, you know, what was in the press back then. Again, the stories of murders and rapes and looting and plundering. But we actually know from sociology that what really happens also after Katrina, but every single time after an earthquake or, or a tsunami is that people pull together from the left to the right, rich, poor, young, old. We now have more than 700 case studies from sociologists uh, that prove this over and over again. So um, I advise people to look maybe a little bit less of the news because that often makes you cynical and zoom out a little bit and look what science is telling us. Um, the iconic uh, explanation for this idea of the thin veneer of civilization is, of course, the Lord of the Flies. This idea of these young kids, young boys abandoned on an island and, you know, they, it turns into a pretty savage, you know, all against all. They, they mm -hmm. band into groups. Uh, you have something interesting to say about a real life version of the Lord of the Flies. Yes, you know, I remember reading Lord of the Flies when I was 16 or 17 years old, and I remember feeling quite depressed. It was only while I was researching this book that I wondered, has it ever happened? You know, can I find one case in all world history where real kids shipwrecked on a real island and, and what would actually happen? Turns out that, yes, it did happen. Um, a long time ago, 50 years ago, in 1966, there were these six kids from Tonga, which is an island group in the Pacific Ocean. They were students of a boarding school, an Anglican boarding school uh, in the capital there. They were bored with school. They said, you know what, we're gonna go on an adventure. We're gonna steal a boat. Uh, and they ended up in a storm, drifted for eight days, shipwrecked on this island. 
and survived for 15 months. And uh, I managed to track them down, actually. And it turns out they're still the best of friends today because that's how they survived, by staying friends. So the real Lord of the Flies is in every single way the opposite of the fictional Lord of the Flies. It's a story of human resilience and of friendship and of hope. You do have World War II, the Nazis, Auschwitz, mm. uh, World War I, uh, the, bar- the barbarity of ISIS, uh, of Al-Qaeda, mm-hmm. uh, the Cambodian, uh, you know, Pol Pot uh, yeah. e- experience. The list is very long. How, yeah, how do you square all that with your cheerful history of human beings' uh, essential goodness? Hmm. I wouldn't say that I'm arguing that people are naturally good. I think that we've evolved to be friendly, which is something different. This is literally what biologists are arguing these days. They talk about survival of the friendliest, which means that for millennia, it was actually the friendliest among us who had the most kids and so had the biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation. But it's important to emphasize that there's a real dark side to this friendliness. Uh, If you look at history, so often we do the most horrible things in the name of comradeship and of loyalty and because we don't want to let down our own group. So um, I I arrive at a quite paradoxical view of human nature, I think, where on the one hand, yes, we are built to connect. We've been shaped by evolution to work together. But yeah, cooperation sometimes always uh, also leads to really horrible things. So I want to connect this to, to the present, and I think it connects in a very powerful way. The, de- the debates about defunding the police fundamentally mm-hmm. get at this idea that, can, you know, do we have to uh, approach, you know, something like policing in this very fearful attitude that says human mm-hmm. beings are very nasty. If we let up even slightly, um, you know, all hell will break loose. Or are mm-hmm. we actually doing the opposite? Are we, are we assuming too much nastiness? And, and we could take our foot off the, uh, the accelerator or the brake, depending on how you yeah, make the yeah. metaphor work. Mm-hmm. I think that what you assume in other people is what you get out of them. So if you assume that people deep down are just selfish and savages, then you're going to design all your institutions around that, your schools and your workplaces and the way your police will operate. And you'll, you know, you'll, you'll create a lot of bad things. But if you turn it around, uh, also in policing, I think you can move to a very different kind of society. In the book, I look at the criminal justice system that they have in Norway, which is in almost every single way the opposite of what the US has. So on the one hand, they have like very powerful community policing, where the police officer is a kind of a social worker that really tries to establish trust in the community. And then the prisons, well, they they are like these um, very strange, almost like holiday resorts where inmates get treated with kindness. And they socialize with the guards. They have the freedom to make music. They have their own music studio and their own music label, which is called Criminal Records. And then, you know, I first learned about this and I thought, this is crazy. You know, this is nuts. These Norwegians, they've lost it. But then you look at the evidence. You look at the recidivism rate, for example, the chance that someone will come out of crime once he or she gets out of prison. And it's nowhere as low as in Norway, while it's really high in the U.S. So I think that the U.S. could learn um, quite a bit from other countries here. All right. Well, you've given us a lot to think about and certainly a lot to hope for. Um, Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And we will be back in a moment. Don't forget, if you miss a show, go to CNN.com slash Fareed for a link to my iTunes podcast. My book of the week is Humankind, A Hopeful History by Rutger Bregman, whom we had on. 
This is one of those books that tries to make you see the world and all of history in a different light, and it mostly succeeds. Whether you agree with it or find yourself arguing with it, you will see that it has a bigger impact on you than most books you will read this year. And now, for the last look. July is a month that celebrates democracy and liberty, from America's celebrations this week to France's Bastille Day that's coming up soon. But this July, we should really note something else, the erosion of democracy, one more grim consequence of COVID. As Larry Diamond noted in a recent Atlantic article, democracies were already weakening over the last decade. The pandemic pushed open the door for an autocratic power grab, and many leaders jumped at the opportunity, all in the name of fighting the disease, of course. Ethiopia's fragile transition to democracy is now under threat. The parliament postponed that nation's first free and fair election, and then it extended the prime minister's term without input from opposition parties. In Malaysia, the new reformist government was effectively closed due to COVID-19, and recently ousted corrupt leaders returned to positions of power while the opposition has been shut out. Perhaps most notably, Hungary's populist leader, Viktor Orban, was granted emergency powers to rule by decree in March. Though the state of the emergency ended, observers worry that Orban's extraordinary powers are here to stay. Hungary's law also allowed officials to punish the publication of what they determined was fake COVID news with jail time. In fact, data from the International Center for Not-for-Profit Law found that pandemic responses in 40 countries curtailed free expression in this way. From India and Indonesia to Nepal and Nicaragua, governments cracked down on free press and on critics, all in the name of supposedly fighting misinformation. Now, Tunisia took the entirely opposite approach, its cabinet promising public funds to independent media to stay afloat as the pandemic cripples the economy there. Indeed, if you look closely, the pandemic has actually strengthened people's desires for democracy. South Korea's recently socially distant vote actually had the country's highest turnout in almost 30 years. Malawi's vote, a rerun on a contested election, also ran smoothly, bringing to power the opposition leader. And the world's largest ever civil rights protests show that civic engagement is alive and well. Even the lockdown protests indicate the health of free assembly. In Germany, the Constitutional Court overturned a ban on demonstrations ruling that, pandemic or not, the people had a right to protest. And that country still managed to bring down infection rates quickly and has so far avoided any second wave. And that is the ultimate irony of these political maneuvers. Democracies from South Korea to Germany have shown themselves to be perfectly capable of handling this disease without any new emergency powers. And at that very moment, demagogues are using this very pandemic to destroy democracy. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.